Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Father Peter French Ryan, SJ, Executive Director of the Secretariat of Doctrine for the USCCB, giving a talk entitled The Catholic University and the Idea of Academic Freedom. Father Ryan's talk was part of the Fidelity and Freedom series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. It's wonderful to be here with all of you. Uh, When I was asked to address a symposium titled Academic Freedom and the Revealed Truth, honoring the 25th anniversary of Ex Corde Ecclesiae, I was not in a position to produce a new article on the topic, but I had written a paper titled The Catholic University and the Idea of Academic Freedom only a few years after the Apostolic Constitution was released. And I was convinced that the points I made in that article are at least as relevant now as they were then. And uh, I hope you will agree with that assessment. I'm grateful for being invited to give that paper now with only minor changes. In 1994, Father Theodore Hesburgh, long president of uh, Notre Dame, edited a collection of essays by members of Notre Dame's faculty and administration entitled The Challenge and Promise of a Catholic University. In the initial article, Hesburgh proclaims, a great Catholic university must begin by being a great university that is also Catholic. He argues that if the Catholic Church wants to be a part of the university world in modern times, she must play by the rules that govern that world. Quote, the best and only traditional authority in the university is intellectual competence. This, he affirms, is the coin of the realm, unquote. He concludes that the university cannot be subject to any external authority, including the magisterium. Father Richard McBrien expounds a similar position. He wholeheartedly subscribes to the view expressed in a 1976 position paper of the National Catholic Education Association on academic freedom in Catholic colleges and universities. Quote, freedom from outside constraints is the very breath of life for a college and university. An authentic Catholic institution of higher learning must be free to be Catholic. If the integrity and freedom of the academy is attacked, undermined by an academic law of the church, the church will be the first to suffer. Its enemies will contend derisively that truth cannot be upheld and defended without resort to penalties and outside sanctions, confirming for some the suspicion that Catholic institutions cannot be true universities, unquote. Thus, Richard McBrien. Father Richard McCormick deplores the idea of understanding the Catholicity of a Catholic university, quote, in terms of a rigid, narrowly defined orthodoxy, unquote, which he sees as a threat to academic freedom. As an example of such an unenlightened outlook, He cites Veritatis Splendor 16, quote, it falls to them, bishops, 
in communion with the Holy See, both to grant the title Catholic to church-related schools, universities, healthcare facilities, and counseling services, and in cases of serious failure to live up to that title, to take it away, unquote. So that's the unenlightened outlook that Father McCormick, SJ, uh, is promoting. <laughs> Those who, uh, or is criticizing it, those who govern the overwhelming majority of the Catholic colleges and universities in this country uh, share the view of academic freedom espoused by fathers Hesburgh, McBrien, and McCormick. I will critique two presuppositions that make it impossible for them to identify the features that distinguish a university precisely as Catholic. First, the assumption that the magisterium should not be the final arbiter of what counts as Catholic in a university. And second, the assumption that we should find the value of such specifically Catholic elements as sacraments, mainly in their capacity to open our eyes to the goodness of the secular world, which is already grounded in grace. I will then argue that unless the connection of Catholic universities with the magisterium is reestablished, they will inevitably become ever more secularized. It seems to me that that's been what's happening over these last 20 years. Finally, I will outline an approach to academic freedom that I consider capable of supporting the specifically Catholic mission of our institutions of higher education. So, the problem of identifying what makes a university Catholic. Now this problem of determining what it means for a university to be Catholic cannot be resolved by appealing, as Father McBrien does, uh, by, excuse me, by arguing, as he does, that Catholic identity, at least at Notre Dame, is obvious from the many symbols and expressions of Catholicism, most notably the many well-attended masses. But while specifically Catholic symbols, the mass itself and an emphasis on social justice, I think really are essential, they are by no means sufficient to sustain a university's Catholic character. Ralph McInerney, in the same collection of essays, writes, quote, a university is chiefly concerned with the mind and imagination. If the faith has no influence on what goes on in the classrooms and laboratories, studios and stages of the university, the university is not Catholic, unquote. So I find his piece a real, uh, really helpful contribution. Uh, recognizing that more than externals are needed, Father McBrien spells out three essential requirements of a Catholic university, attributes that in and of themselves are hard to dispute. But he adds a caveat to each one that effectively contradicts the claim that it establishes Catholic specificity. He first points out that the Catholic university quote, identifies itself with the Catholic tradition and with the wider Catholic community, unquote. But quickly adds that the whole church and not just the magisterium is charged with the task of interpreting that tradition. He claims that only someone with what he calls a faulty ecclesiology 
would hold that it is the particular role of the magisterium rather than of the whole people of God to determine what counts as Catholic. Well, while McBrien is right to insist that the people of God are authorized to interpret that tradition, he wrongly implies that they can carry out that function apart from the magisterium. The people of God as such do not authentically interpret the tradition whenever a Catholic or a group of Catholics or even a group of Catholic theologians claims that an interpretation is Catholic. They do so only when the magisterium speaks on matters of faith and morals. An analogy will illuminate the point. The people of God celebrate mass, but they do not do so whenever a group of Catholics gather to share bread and wine, even if they use all the right words and really believe that it is a true mass. The people of God celebrate mass only when a validly ordained priest acts as the principal celebrant. The second characteristic of a Catholic university McBride identifies is that it, quote, intentionally embraces and attempts to live by Catholic values, unquote. But he makes it impossible to understand those values as specifically Catholic. By insisting that they are, quote, at the same time, humane values that can be shared by non-Catholic Christians and by non-Christians alike, unquote. I'll be saying more about that later. Finally, McBride argues that the critical mass of faculty and administrators needed to keep a university Catholic includes not only committed Catholics, but also, quote, non-Catholics who respect the Catholic tradition and who support the university's intention to be and to remain faithful to that tradition, unquote. Those who respect the tradition without placing themselves within it are thus numbered among the critical mass necessary for maintaining the university's identity specifically as Catholic. Without a doubt, certain key non-Catholic fellow travelers, as it were, have done a great deal, in some cases more than many of their Catholic colleagues, to preserve the Christian character of the universities in which they serve. We should be grateful to them. Yet, McBrien insists that even such a broadly conceived critical mass need not constitute a simple majority. So he implies that a minority that may include many non-Catholics is sufficient to preserve a university's specifically Catholic identity even when faced with a majority that is hostile. Remember, only the ones in this critical mass are the ones that have to res even respect the Catholic identity. Even when faced with a majority that is hostile to the idea of maintaining the Catholic identity. Well, maybe that could be done, but only if the Catholic identity at stake is based on a very watered-down notion of Catholicism. Father Hesburg fares no better in his effort to identify the distinctive features of a Catholic university. Although he insists that philosophy, and especially theology, must be afforded a central place and be in what he calls living dialogue with the other areas of study, he does not really clear, clarify what the university's specifically Catholic character 
means. On the one hand, he does not explain why philosophy, which in and of itself does not presuppose faith, should be central only to a Catholic university. On the other hand, he never explains how promoting theology would necessarily have the effect of preserving Catholic identity. For theology can only uh, function as the university's specifically Catholic integrating principle if it is specifically Catholic theology. And Hesburgh's account gives no basis for assuming that the theology promoted would necessarily be Catholic, for he effectively detaches university theology from the magisterium by suggesting that the only standards for judging theology are internal to the academy and by seeing the magisterium as external. The ecclesiological problem with the secular concept of academic freedom. Let's consider that. The first problematic presupposition of Catholics who adopt the secular concept of academic freedom then is ecclesiological. They assume that the magisterium cannot be the final arbiter of a university's specifically Catholic identity since they hold that any appeal to an external authority compromises academic freedom. The problem that view poses with respect to a university's Catholic character comes into sharp focus when one considers its implications for the discipline of theology itself. For again, the question arises as to how theology can serve as a university's specifically Catholic integrating principle when it is divorced from the magisterium. According to the Catholic understanding, the magisterium is uniquely competent to propose articles of faith and to settle disputes about it. As Avery Dulles uh, reminded Catholic theologians at the 1995 meeting of the Catholic Theological Society of America, quote, the successors of Peter and the bishops in communion with him are individually and collectively the judges of doctrine, unquote. The doctrines on faith and morals promulgated by the teaching authority of the church then serve as first principles for Catholic theology. Thus, it is not only academic inquiry that has its own method and a degree of autonomy, but faith as well. As a colleague that I've done a lot of work with and uh, puts it, Jean Grise, quote, the truths of faith make an incontrovertible demand upon the mind of the believer, a demand no more open to denial than that made by facts of experience or evident logical truths, unquote. Since authentically Catholic theology strives to deepen our understanding of faith and its practical requirements, it proceeds by definition from those truths. Does that mean that Catholic theology is incompatible with the idea of academic freedom? Well, not at all. As long as academic freedom is properly conceived. Ex corde ecclesiae describes it thus, and I quote, Academic freedom is the guarantee given to those involved in teaching and research that 
within their specific branch of knowledge, <coughs> pardon me, and according to the, maybe I better go, for some of this marvelous H2O. <coughs> Ex Corde Ecclesiae describes academic freedom this way. Academic freedom, it says, is the guarantee given to those involved in teaching and research that within their specific branch of knowledge and according to the methods proper to that specific area, they may search for the truth wherever analysis and evidence lead them and may teach and publish the results of this search keeping in mind the cited criteria, that is, safeguarding the rights of the individual and of society within the confines of the truth and the common good." Unquote. But accepting revelation as it comes to us from the magisterium is the indispensable starting point of Catholic theological method. As the document itself puts it, quote, since theology seeks an understanding of revealed truth, whose authentic interpretation is entrusted to the bishops of the church, it is intrinsic to the principles and methods of their research and teaching in their academic disciplines that theologians respect the authority of the bishop and assent to Catholic doctrine according to the degree of authority with which it is taught." Unquote. That's right from Ex corde. Now, to be sure, Catholic theology includes the creative role of reflecting on scripture and tradition in order to suggest possible developments of doctrine. So, uh, I mean, those suggestions, of course, must be compatible with previously settled magisterial uh, teachings, but there's no reason to assume that creativity is impossible without radical theological dissent. Okay, we've talked about the ecclesiological problem with uh, the secular concept of academic freedom. What about the anthropological problem with that concept? The second problematic presupposition that makes it impossible for Catholics who adopt the secular concept of academic freedom to provide an, an adequate explanation of what makes a university Catholic has to do with their conception of the relationship between nature and grace. I call this the anthropological problem. The difficulty is evident, for example, in Richard McCormick's explanation of the sacramentality of the Catholic vision that should distinguish graduates of a great Catholic university. He quotes Michael and Kenneth Himes, who write, quote, sacraments are not intrusions into the secular world, but points at which the depth of the secular is uncovered and revealed as grounded in grace, unquote. Now, one need not view sacraments is somehow opposed to the natural order. One certainly need not deny the goodness of creation to find the explanation of Michael and Kenneth Himes, endorsed by Richard McCormick, to be less than satisfactory. 
The world is indeed created and sustained by God, and his offer of grace is open to all. However, human nature as we know it is now in a fallen condition, and not everyone accepts God's offer of grace. Ignoring these points, Father McCormick plays down what is specifically Catholic in the sacraments and emphasizes their capacity to help us appreciate the sacredness of the secular. Yet he provides no principle whereby one can distinguish the sacred dimensions of the secular from the sinful. His comment on the passage quoted makes the problem clear, and I quote, the points to which the brothers Himes refer are persons, places, things that allow us to experience all reality as grounded in God's gracious self-communication, grace. This sacramental vision is impoverished when the mediation of God's grace is restricted to special rituals which are formally designated as sacraments. In the Catholic vision, all of reality is sacred, and the seven sacraments seek to evoke awareness of this sacredness and ultimacy." Unquote. Thus McCormick. Another aspect of the anthropological problem with which we are concerned is Father McBrien's comment that the values that distinguish the Catholic University are, quote, at the same time, humane values that can be shared by non-Catholic Christians and by Catholics alike, unquote. I said, this is the point I said I'd, I'd be speaking, getting back to later. Of course, one can hardly deny that Catholics can and should have many values in common with all people of goodwill, especially with other Christians. But to reduce specifically Catholic values to those that are shared, not only with other Christians, but with anyone at all, regardless of explicit faith, is to suggest that the norm for determining Catholicity is to be found not in the church, but in the secular world. Like Father McCormick, Father McBrien seems to assume that the secular world is basically benign, and he too fails to furnish a principle whereby one can distinguish the extent to which the secular order is sacred rather than sinful. We are left with a sort of anonymous Catholicism in which the anonymous Catholic becomes the very norm of Catholicity, a state of affairs that precludes any possibility of explaining why the anonymous character in question should be considered Catholic in the first place. A further dimension of the problem is manifested in Father Hesburgh's description of what should characterize any great university, even apart from the question of Catholic identity. He writes in glowing terms of a place where, quote, the values of justice and charity, truth and beauty, are both taught and exemplified by the faculty and where both faculty and students are seized by a deep uh, compassion for human angu anguishes and are committed to proffer a helping hand wherever possible in every aspect of our material, intellectual, spiritual, and cultural development." Unquote. Thus Father Hesburgh. Now certainly any university should be concerned to improve the human condition in ways that pertain to its identity as a center of intellectual activity. But Hesper goes beyond that, implying that the theological virtue of charity characterizes the university as such, even apart from its specifically religious identity. 
Both his use of the term charity and his description of the activity in question suggests that he is importing Christian meaning into his understanding of even a secular university. Here too, the secular order is regarded as anonymously Christian, and it's no wonder that difficulties arise when he attempts to isolate the distinctive features of a specifically Catholic university. A disinterested observer could not help but regard this baptizing of the secular world by Catholics as ironic. To appreciate that irony, one need only consider the actual character of that world, and more specifically, of American academic culture. In an essay in the Hesburgh volume that echoes themes from his book, The Soul of the American University, George Marsden explains that, quote, there is a dominant American university culture that dictates the standards for all who want to be recognized as true universities. This dominant university culture, in turn, has distinctly Protestant origins, unquote. Indeed, writes Marsden, quote, American universities had distinctively anti-Catholic origins, unquote. The point becomes clear when one analyzes the characteristics that were supposed to distinguish uh, American universities. They were set up to be non-sectarian and scientific, but Marsden explains that non-sectarian means broadly Protestant, or meant broadly Protestant, and dedicated to democratic moral ideas, unquote. While scientific, he says, meant freedom from what was perceived as sectarian prejudice. The grossest expression of which was thought to be found in Catholicism with its structure of authority. Indeed, the freedom of scientific inquiry was more and more assumed to exclude theological commitments in principle. Now, some might claim that this shaking off of Christian specificity does not reflect an animus toward Christianity in general and Catholicism in particular, but only an honest concern to promote free scientific inquiry. Such an interpretation would be more plausible if American university culture were ideologically neutral. But such is not now and never has been the case. For example, the truth of the opinion that it is possible to find, as Marsden uh, recalls the understanding behind American universities, a scientific basis for shared moral ideals was merely assumed, not demonstrated. That claim was first denied primarily by Catholics and is now rejected by postmodern critics. Reflections, reflection on such points should serve to remind us that universities do not exist in a vacuum, but within a culture characterized by its own specific and sometimes unwarranted presuppositions that are open to criticism, even from secular sources. Some of the assumptions that characterize university culture, I think, are worth noting. It tends to suppose that supernatural revelation is impossible. I think that's generally assumed among, among academics in, in uh, secular universities. Uh, and 
As a result, religion is treated as a mere matter of opinion based on purely subjective values. Uh, university culture also bases knowledge about reality on the model of empirical scientific research. I mean, these are broad brush statements, but I think they're generally true. So knowledge becomes ever revisable and one can never arrive at a conviction that is not open to refutation at some point in the future. Now when Catholic theologians embrace that view, they conclude that infallible teaching is impossible because it's always able to be revised. University culture also tends to treat knowledge as salvific, for it sees man as one more subject of scientific investigation alongside others, and assumes that the increase in application of knowledge about his problems will ensure his perfection. Finally, social sciences tend to exclude freedom by presupposing a deterministic view of history. Now, again, it's not as though these are listed and you have to formally believe all of that in order to be able to be a prominent figure in a secular university, but there's a tendency, I think, within that secular academic university culture to, to uh, promote those views. But those assumptions are quite obviously incompatible with Christianity in general and Catholicism in particular. And yet, while none has been corroborated, as though those assumptions, they haven't been shown to be true by a reasoned argument, challenging them in any consistent and forceful matter could very well elicit the charge that one is blocking free inquiry by introducing matters of faith, which in turn could have the effect of reducing one's credibility in the academy. Concerns about violating academic freedom tend not to be raised when someone is criticized or persecuted uh, for objecting to the received assumptions of the academic community. When you call those things into question, you, you know, people don't necessarily think of you as being protected by academic freedom. Uh, concerns about academic freedom tend rather to arise when a university's specifically Christian or Catholic identity conflicts with those assumptions. That point becomes evident when one considers the phenomenon of political correctness. As Ralph McInerney puts it, quote, if there is anything that characterizes the contemporary secular university, it is the thought police who roam about the campus seeking whom they might silence, unquote. Uh, it, it really, I mean, I think there is, even in the last 20 years since I originally wrote this, it's, it's or 19 or 18 or whatever it was, um, it really is the case, I think, that there's more and more of, a, of an attack on, on free speech, a, a tendency not to want certain sorts of points to be made. A single example will suffice. McInerney remarks that the charge of homophobia has almost silenced the commonly recognized and authoritatively, authoritatively taught truth that homosexuality is a, per, a perversion and a sin, unquote. He's obviously referring to homosexual acts, not to homosexual persons who obviously deserve our respect. But the problem McInerney is referring to about this charge of homophobia is by no means limited to the secular universities. I experienced it myself at a Catholic college back in 1995 
when an openly homosexual graduate was taking questions and comments from an overwhelmingly sympathetic audience after expounding on the joys and persecution, uh, perse persecutions experienced by the active homosexual on campus. When I gently pointed out that homosexual activity as opposed to the orientation is incompatible with Christian teaching and that living a chaste life, though really challenging and difficult, is possible with grace and can serve as an opportunity for a person experiencing these, these same-sex attractions to grow in holiness, I was almost shouted down by angry members of the audience. Although I was finally allowed to continue, that reaction poisoned the atmosphere and may well have prevented others from making similar points. Such experiences, which unfortunately are not rare on Catholic campuses, illustrate a sad truth about the culture we have borrowed from the secular academy. Certain ideas and classes of persons within the university enjoy a practical exemption from criticism even while the price of, of maintaining that exemption is to compromise the integrity of the university's Catholic identity. Okay, the need to reestablish the practical link between Catholic universities and the magisterium. Professor Marsden's account of how the great non-sectarian Christian universities lost their religious character could well serve as an object lesson for those in policy-making positions at Catholic institutions of higher learning. He points out that, quote, the shapers of American university culture excluded the more conservative parts of their own cultural heritage. Theology, which was considered divisive, was removed as a reference point in other academic inquiry so that religious viewpoints, such as there were, had strictly to do with morality, unquote. Now, without the underpinnings of faith and theology, moral unity cannot long endure. It didn't last any longer in those secular universities than in the surrounding culture. Lacking a basis in theology as shared morality does not in any event unite people as Christians, but only culturally. As Marsden puts it, Morality detached from theological reference would soon make Christianity as such irrelevant, unquote. So I think the focus on social action, while good in itself, doesn't really do the job of ensuring any kind of Catholic identity if it's not integrally connected with and even arising from faith. The very idea of a non-sectarian Christian university, at least in the sense just considered, is problematic, for it carries within itself the seeds of the destruction of the university's religious identity. It implies a mixed agenda. While Christianity seems to be highly valued, the desire to avoid the consequences of institutional commitment to doctrine overrides any effectual effort to maintain the university's Christian character. Unless a university is willing to clarify the nature of its commitment to Christianity by articulating a clear principle by which it will stand and which will serve as a concrete link to the Christian religion, 
it will not be equipped to withstand the massive drift of society at large away from Christianity. And I think in the last couple of decades, that's just become ever so much more the case. The only principle capable of sustaining the specifically Catholic identity of a university is commitment to the fullness of the Christian message as it is handed on through the teaching office of the church. Obviously prayer, obviously personal conversion, obviously embrace of Jesus Christ, obviously the work of the Holy Spirit is essential, okay? But uh, unless there's a specific link to the magisterium, then those things can begin to, you know, be interpreted in different ways and not sustain the specifically Catholic identity. The broadly Protestant universities had no such principle as the magisterium and were therefore inherently subject to what Marsden calls the gale force winds of secularization. For Catholic universities to jettison the principle that amounts, uh, to jettison that principle amounts to their casting aside not only their shield against those gale force winds of secularization, but also uh, casting aside a heritage and a perspective that serves as a spur in the quest for truth and enables them to engage the culture from a critical distance while making a unique contribution to it. And now a, a few words about institutional academic freedom and concern for diversity. Some charge that it violates academic freedom to treat religious commitment and the ability to promote the university's specifically Catholic mission as factors that are no less essential than academic competence in making judgments about faculty hiring and the awarding of tenure. However, academic freedom applies not only to individuals within universities, but also to universities themselves. Institutions as well as individuals have the right to define themselves. Or perhaps I should put it this way, the right of individuals to define themselves extends to their establishing institutions whose character reflects their convictions. When one considers the concern for the values of diversity and multiculturalism currently professed by virtually every major institution of higher education in this country, one sees that the current effort to promote those values is in some ways self-defeating. For while individuals within institutions may come from diverse cultures, the cultures themselves are represented only in an extremely fragmented form. Marsden observes, quote, as it is typically implemented in the dominant academic culture, multiculturalism amounts not to creating diversity among institutions, but rather toward making them all look alike. Particular traditions of institutions, including religious traditions, are expected to give way to representing the variety of currently accepted viewpoints." Unquote. So Marsden asks whether multiculturalism should not include concern for the religious heritages that have been at the hearts of most cultures. To deny that it should 
would reveal not only a bias against religion as such, but a lack of concern for authentic diversity. Thus, even from the standpoint of fostering diversity, Catholic universities would do well to hold fast to their specifically Catholic character. A place like Franciscan University is contributing to diversity by being different from your typical uh, secular university. And by not being just like uh, many ostensibly Catholic universities. Now a few words about academic freedom within the university. The Catholic University combines the free pursuit of truth with an affiliation with the Catholic Church, which of course is committed to specific stands on key questions of truth. That raises questions about the autonomy of a Catholic University. Should not any university be free, as Father Hesburgh and company insist, from authorities that would place restrictions on its quest for knowledge? Freedom is crucial for the proper functioning of any university, but well, freedom is always subject to various legitimate restrictions. From within the university, there are requirements of competence for receiving tenure. From without, there are restriction, restrictions imposed by accrediting associations to ensure that universities meet certain standards. Neither constitutes an illicit infringement of academic freedom. There is also the very effective system of financial limitations placed on universities by the government and ultimately by the public at large on programs they find unacceptable. The legitimacy of this last sort of restriction is implicitly admitted by academics when they appeal to the larger community for funding based on the claim that they perform a public service. They're essentially saying, see whether you don't agree that this is a public service and then being subjected to the judgment outside of the university itself. True enough, freedom may sometimes be restricted unduly, but some restrictions on freedom clearly are perfectly legitimate. After all, freedom is not an absolute value, but an instrumental value. The ultimate reason for the existence of a university is not simply to be free, but rather to search for and discover truth. While freedom is generally an indispensable means to that end, sometimes restrictions on freedom can be conducive to it, as the above examples attest. Those restrictions on the freedom of the university tend to be widely accepted because, with the possible exception of the role of the community at large, they are generally recognized as intrinsic requirements of the search for truth itself. What about restrictions imposed by church authority based on exigencies of Catholic doctrine? Objections to the legitimacy of that form of limitation tend to be based on the contention that such authority is external, not only to the particular university in question, but to the academic project as such. But is church authority really external to the university? Well, in one sense it clearly is, since the hierarchy is not part of the university's formal organizational structure and does not administer that university. Yet, in a more profound sense, that authority is internal to the university. 
inasmuch as those who establish a university as Catholic freely um, arrange for it to be Catholic. If a university wants to proclaim itself as Catholic, then it must measure up to certain objective criteria. Although those standard, standards are not established by the university, since it does not determine what counts as Catholic, they are internalized by the university in the very desire of its founders to set it up as Catholic. Is church authority external to the academic project as such? Well, for the unbeliever who assumes that truth can only be attained through human effort, it cannot help but seem external. As Professor Griset puts it, quote, lacking faith, human reason and experience inevitably view the truths of faith as particular opinions on a controverted question, unquote. Limitations based on church authority therefore strike the unbeliever as arbitrary and inappropriate. But here we are referring to the committed unbeliever. Those on the other hand who do not believe or do not fully believe yet have not accepted the anti-religious credo of the dominant academic culture will at least be in a position to realize that they cannot, like George Bernard Shaw, dismiss the Catholic University as a contradiction in terms. For they will acknowledge that neither the possibility of divine revelation in general, nor the, claim, the claims of Catholicism in particular, they'll acknowledge that they haven't been disproved, and they'll therefore not assume that, not assume that church authority within the university is necessarily incompatible with the academic project as such. In other words, if there are claim, truth claims that arise from faith, you can't just start out, reasonably start out assuming they must be false because you haven't reasoned your way to it in the way that someone without faith can understand. You'd need to show that a particular truth claim is false by using reason. And not having done that, an open person is not gonna find any kind of conflict. As for the believer, as Griset explains, Quote, faith opens up an entire realm of transcendent truth utter, otherwise utterly inaccessible. At the same time, faith generates its own critique of the myths that compete with it, myths that are actually projections of the human mind on reality, but which claim acceptance as philosophic critique or scientific truth. Thus, Far from viewing a university's religious commitment as a restriction on freedom, the believer is able to see that faith is not only compatible with the academic project, but complements that project and stimulates it. John Paul II, of course, has much to say about this in Fides et Ratio. And now, academic freedom in the present situation which is still the present situation, despite the fact that this, this talk was written a while ago. It's painfully obvious that many members of Catholic university communities do not agree with the Catholic view of the purpose of life. Some do not believe in God, or if they do, have a completely different understanding of who or what God is. 
Some, perhaps many, do not believe that the human person is a unity of body and soul, and that the human person is called to a fulfillment beyond what can be found on this side of death. Most students have probably done very little thinking about such questions, although some have to some degree. They may have some religious training and even some faith commitment, but at the same time, it's ever more the case, they're likely to have formed their views largely according to the canons of modern secular culture. Although that culture is compatible with some aspects of a Judeo-Christian worldview, it is increasingly hostile to the claims of organized religion, religions such as Catholicism, to mediate divine revelation and to speak with authority on controversial questions of social and personal morality. Given that context, how can a Catholic institution of higher education function as a community when you have all these different participants with such different values and beliefs influenced to different degrees by the surrounding culture? It must be acknowledged at once that there are legitimate differences among members of the university community and they must be respected. Indeed, it should be recognized that differences could even enrich that community to the degree that they are expressions of a commitment to truth and a search for genuine meaning. We do need to learn from each other after all. We should also realize that beneath our differences, it is often possible to discover shared values. Still, the question arises as to what degree of pluralism is possible without surrendering or at least diluting what is specifically Catholic? What common ground can be found in such a situation? Well, those who become members of any university communion should at least agree that knowledge is a value worth pursuing for its own sake. Those who choose to be part of a Catholic community of higher education also should agree on something more. They should share the conviction that it is likewise a value to determine whether there is an overall purpose to life, which if discovered should be shared with others as one collaborates in the task of relating the purpose, the pursuit of knowledge and indeed all other values to that purpose. If you think about it, that's not asking a lot. Recognizing knowledge as a value to be, you know, pursuing truth is important and valuable and then recognizing that it's worth at least trying to determine whether there is an overall purpose to life and then finding it, relating all one does, all one's whole pursuit of knowledge to it. That attitude, it seems to me, can be required of every member of a Catholic college community, whatever faith the person might have. Such an approach respects the intellectual integrity of each individual and challenges him to engage in a mutual search for truth and meaning. It calls everyone to recognize that while knowledge is worth Pursuing for its own sake, the search for truth is fully coherent only if it is informed by the hope of finding it and integrating it into the whole of life. The conviction that it is possible to attain truth then should not be rejected a priori as incompatible with the search for truth. That would be rather absurd. It is instead the presupposition that truth cannot be found that renders the search futile and precludes the possibility of discerning any real meaning in life. 
even if members of the academic community do not share their university's Catholic faith commitment, they should be prepared to understand that commitment at, not as being incompatible with an absolute openness to truth wherever the search for it may lead, but as expressing the institutional conviction that an open-minded search for truth has led precisely to that commitment. In other words, they can't start out assuming that the Catholic view is incompatible with openness to truth. They should see rather that the commitment is a reflection of a commitment as to where an open-minded search has led them. So all members should not expect the conviction of the university to change, but rather to be made manifest. To expect anything else would be to wish that those responsible for the orientation of the university, that they not be true to their own convictions. Well, that's, that's clearly at odds with any general respect for truth and value and conscience. Ex Corde Ecclesiae indicates that the church recognizes the, quote, academic freedom of scholars in each discipline in accordance with its own principles and proper methods and within the confines of truth and the common good, unquote. So while academic freedom should prevail, as Ex Corde Ecclesiae make clear, it may not contradict the principles of truly Catholic theology, nor the common good of a university grounded in the Catholic faith. That understanding of academic freedom is not a restriction on reason, for it must be borne in mind that faith and reason do not conflict. Faith has nothing to fear from reason, nor reason from faith. Both are gifts of the same God that, in the manner proper to each, mediate truth. And since truth is not self-contradictory, the university's mission to pursue truth through reason is in no way compromised by its commitment to the truths of faith. A contradiction of that kind is not even theoretically possible. Only from the perspective of unbelief do contradictions seem possible, even seem inevitable. But unbelief cannot be vindicated without showing that reason refutes the truths of faith, which the person of faith holds simply cannot be shown. This commitment to faith is no mere fideism, however, for the believer employs his reason to explain why claims that contradict faith do not really tell against it. And unless those arguments are refuted, the view that faith hampers reason cannot be sustained. In any case, far from viewing faith as a restriction on his freedom, the person of faith recognizes in value, recognizes the value of faith, both in helping him or her avoid intellectual blind alleys and in opening up new questions, which otherwise would not have come up for consideration at all. As for those responsible for maintaining the university's Catholic character, it's crucial that they do more than preserve a merely juridical link with the church. For while the approach to the present situation I have suggested explains how a certain legitimate diversity can exist on the campus of a Catholic university, I haven't really explained how 
a the Catholic character of a university can be preserved. The need for a university to make its religious commitment concrete is evident from Marsden's observations that those who controlled the great non-sectarian Christian universities did not directly choose to abandon their institution's religious identities, but that it happened as a result of choices that promised to improve those institutions and even to enhance their Christian characters, character by encouraging openness and tolerance. Schools, Marsden writes, became more open, more inclusive, less coercive, all in the name of the Christian spirit of the institutions. He considers, uh, by the way, uh, Father Birchall of Notre Dame, I guess he wrote a book, what, shortly after I wrote this paper, I think he is deceased, isn't he? In any case, he, uh, he, he explains the history of how the same thing Marsden describes about the great non-sectarian universities lost their faith commitment. He gives a whole explanation of what, what happened within many Catholic universities. Marsden considers in particular the critical area of faculty hiring and points out, and by the way, I'm edging toward the end. All right, I've only got a little bit left. He considers the critical area of faculty hiring and points out that, quote, once a church-related institution adopts the policy that it will, it will simply hire the best qualified candidates, it is simply a matter of time until the faculty will have an ideological profile essentially like that of the faculty at every other mainstream university. Those who adopted that policy in the now secular universities apparently did not appreciate that inevitability. It's essential that administrators of Catholic universities recognize the danger and make concerted efforts to have to hire teachers whose lives reflect an attained integration between faith and life, between professional competence and Christian wisdom. Otherwise, despite a technical juridical connection with the Catholic Church, the secularizing of Catholic universities will proceed apace, and their capacity to make their unique contribution will be lost. So it's crucially important that those in charge of a Catholic university not just do what they need to be doing juridically to be connected in some way, but that they really want the place to be Catholic and infused with grace. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Father Peter Ryan. Um, I don't hold it against you that you're a Jesuit, as you can see. I'm Jesuit educated myself. Um, and I thank you for a very thoughtful and well-balanced presentation of academic freedom. And I have to congratulate you on writing a paper 20 years ago that reads so well 20 years later. Um, well, Father Ryan's paper shows to my satisfaction that respect for the magisterium of the church does not introduce a foreign body into the life of a Catholic university. It is not an external constraint, as many fear. He shows, and I think convincingly, that it is essential for a university's being Catholic. And so, my response will not take the form of raising objections to the 
points and arguments of Father Ryan, for I have no substantive objections. Well, almost no objections. I was perplexed at the designation of academic freedom as an instrumental good. Uh, that seems to imply that we should abstain from coercing each other in the search for truth because coercing is not an effective means for getting the desired result of people professing the truth. By contrast, respecting the freedom of searchers is an effective means to this result. The unwelcome implication, however, is that if coercion did lead people to professing the truth, then we would coerce, only because non-coercion is a better means is to this result, do we not coerce? But this doesn't sound quite right. Respecting the freedom of searchers seems to be more intrinsically right than this account suggests. And so it seems to me that this freedom, uh, 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 academic freedom, is something more than just an instrumental good. But perhaps it would be boorish on my part to um, pursue this further. It was just a minor point in Father Ryan's lecture, and it's not essential for the main claims of his paper, and probably in the end doesn't even constitute a point of disagreement. So I will now uh, proceed on the assumption that Father Ryan has established his case, and I will, as it were, pull in the other direction. I affirm all that he has said, and then want to say something like this, but on the other hand. And in doing this, I will ask Father Ryan whether he sees this, on the other hand, as a legitimate completion of what he has said, or whether he sees it as compromising what he has said. So, Father Ryan rightly affirms the role that the magisterium plays in a Catholic university. But on the other hand, note that respect for the magisterium by itself does not suffice to make a great Catholic university. It does not even suffice to bring a Catholic university into full accord with excordiae ecclesiae. Now, you might at first say, yes, there's more than just orthodoxy. The faculty have to have the appropriate degrees. They have to be competent. They have to be well published and so on. But professional competence is not the issue. You can have that abundantly in a self-consciously Catholic university and still have a mediocre university. Here's an example of what I mean. A university may be very respectful of the magisterium and yet be unwilling to hear and engage points of view opposed to its own. It may invite only speakers who agree with the magisterium. It may invite speakers only with a view to reinforcing the Catholicism that is already established in the university. And it may do this thinking that it is thereby being particularly loyal to the magisterium. But such a university would fail to do something 
that Excordia Ecclesiae calls for. Namely, it would fail to be, quote, a privileged place for a fruitful dialogue between the gospel and the surrounding culture. Instead of being such a place of encounter, it would become a kind of Catholic ghetto where Catholics just speak to Catholics. The students would not know how to engage the secular world when they graduate. They would be more inclined to shun it. Such a university would, for all its commitment to the magisterium, be deficient as a Catholic university. It would have affirmed the magisterium at the expense of having a vibrant intellectual life. Now, of course, we don't want the intellectual life of a Catholic university to be so open to the surrounding culture that the university is practically assimilated into the culture and can no longer distinguish itself from the culture. One of the parts of Father Ryan's paper that most interested me was the part where he addresses the danger of thinking that Catholic values are indistinguishable from secular values. He has some very penetrating things to say about this danger. We must not let the university be taken over by the surrounding culture. We have to assert our Catholic identity in part by committing ourselves to the magisterium, just as um, uh, he argued. <clears throat> but if we assert it by forming a Catholic ghetto, then we just run away from assimilation into the opposite extreme and still have not found our voice as a real Catholic university. So I'm, I'm not saying that faithful adherence to the magisterium is not a necessary condition for being a real Catholic university. Of course it is. But I am saying that it is not a sufficient condition for being a great Catholic university. And here's another example of missing the mark as a Catholic university despite full orthodoxy. Excordia Ecclesiae says in paragraph 23, students are challenged to pursue an education that combines excellence in humanistic and cultural development with specialized professional training. One can suppose that the Pope is here talking about the liberal arts and is saying that a Catholic university never offers professional training completely apart from some formation in the liberal arts. If a Catholic university gives itself over entirely to professional training without providing any of that broader formation of mind that comes from studying the liberal arts, without providing any sense of the whole of knowledge that is the signature of liberal education, then that university, though it may never be at odds with the magisterium, is a substandard Catholic university. And we might mention here what Excordia Ecclesiae says about the special importance of philosophy and theology in a Catholic university. If these are neglected in the various degree programs, then no profession of loyalty to the magisterium, however strong and well-meant, can keep that university from being deficient as a Catholic university.
Now, this whole subject of Father Ryan's paper um, uh, brings to mind uh, the experience of uh, uh, the great blessed John Henry Newman, um, whom I always consult on these issues and get guidance from. Newman thought that in his day, the church exercised an excessive, as he called it, ecclesiastical surveillance over its theologians. Newman used to say that Catholic theologians were too often, in his words, fighting like the Persians under the lash, by which he meant the lash of those insisting on strict conformity with the magisterium. He often said that theologians were not given the freedom of movement they needed to do their work. He himself suffered at the hands of overzealous defenders of orthodoxy, such as the English advisor to Pope Pius IX, who said that Newman was, quote, the most dangerous man in England. His spirit must be crushed. When in the late 1860s, a plan was formed to open a Catholic college in Oxford, Newman was asked to participate. He declined on the grounds that the English bishops, quote, would never let us have a real one. That is, they would exercise such close supervision over the doctrinal soundness of the teaching in the college as to inhibit it from becoming a real university college. Now I know that the case of Newman is sometimes cited by those who want to portray the magisterium as an intruder into the intellectual life of the university. That is a great mistake. Newman would have never countenanced the view of the magisterium as intruder and would have agreed, I'm sure, to everything that Father Ryan said about the place of the magisterium in a Catholic university. But from the case of Newman, we can learn that the act of upholding the magisterium can sometimes be heavy-handed to the point of interfering with the intellectual life of a university. And we can learn, and this is a, a lesson beyond the, the circumstances of, very different circumstances of Newman in the 19th century, we can learn that it takes great prudence and discretion to assert the claims of the magisterium at the right time in the life of the university, in the right way, toward the right people. The fact that we are committed to respecting the magisterium is only the beginning of the work of building up a university that is exemplary in its Catholic identity. And so, in conclusion, I would uh, come back to Father Ryan and ask, have I, with my on-the-other-hand approach to your paper, um, succeeded in completing it in uh, some way, or have I said something that takes away uh, from what you wanted to say to us? Thank you. I thought it was marvelous on the other hand. And I mean, I agree with just about, you know, I, I think 
you made some very important points to supplement what I was saying. I was certainly, in some sense, giving one side, but I was thinking in terms of where most ostensibly Catholic universities are coming from, and so naturally emphasizing the matter from that perspective. From the perspective of a place that's really, you know, kind of strongly orthodox and everything, it's, it is, there, there can be a problem becoming insular. And so there needs to be a kind of openness so that you would have people who disagree with the church's teaching being able to speak. I think in the context where you have answers and debate about it, that's important. Of course, that's already happening, you know, all over the place in, in most Catholic universities. So I didn't feel the need to bring that out as much, but it may be that, that, that you know, things might be more appropriate to mention in this context because the issues are different from where they might be in most Catholic uh, universities, which is my, my focus. Now, you mentioned that issue about truth and freedom and the relationship. I'm sure I could have probably phrased that matter. You bring, I think, up an interesting, important point. I did say the university doesn't exist to be free. I mean, obviously, it's got content to deal with. It's got issues to deal with. It's got things to think about. It's trying to help people come to an ever deeper knowledge, ever deeper grasp of truth. And that, you know, that's, that's the reason why it's free. It seems to me that that's a true statement. Um, on the other hand, I, I maybe shouldn't have just said freedom is instrumental in such a blunt way because, I mean, just tr truth itself I mean, you could get a parrot to, to make true statements, and that wouldn't, uh, um, you know, wouldn't, it's not interiorized. Truth needs to be interiorized, and interiorizing truth requires understanding it and assenting to it, and that's not able to be done without freedom. So there's something essential about freedom uh, in this whole, this whole quest. So I would certainly, I would certainly I think that's an important point to make. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.